open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 36. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Barak the son of Neriah, and Barak wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of Yahweh that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Barak, saying, I am banned from going to the house of Yahweh, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting and the hearing of all the people in Yahweh's house, you shall read the words of Yahweh from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their, who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before Yahweh and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath of Yah- that Yahweh has pronounced against this people. And Barak the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of Yahweh in, the, in Yahweh's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities to Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before Yahweh. Then in the hearing of all the people, Barak read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of Yahweh, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of Yahweh's house. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of Yahweh from the scroll, he went down to the king's house and to the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. Elishama, the secretary... Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Barak read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudai, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushai, to say to Barak, Take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of all the people and come. So Barak the son of Neriah took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down and read it. So Barak read it to them. And when they heard all the words, they turned one to another in fear. And they said to Barak, We must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Barak, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Barak answered them, He dictated all the words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the officials said to Barak, Go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. So they went to the court, into the court of the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king said to Jehudai, then the king sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary. And Jehudai read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting 
in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the pot before him. As Jehudi read, three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan, Deleah, and Gemariah, the son, uh, uh, Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeramiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdiel, to seize Barak the secretary and Jeremiah the prophet, but Yahweh hid them. And after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Barak wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim king of Judah, you shall say, thus says Yahweh, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy the land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning Jehoiakim king of Judah, He shall shall have none to sit on the throne of David. And his dead body shall be cast to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I've pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Barak the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Creator, Lord, who spoke into existence all that is, who spoke words of truth and life to our fathers, to Adam, who disbelieved, by whose sin we were plunged into depravity, who spoke yet in redeeming love, you are the God who speaks, the living God, the true God, God, forgive us, Father, the heavens declare your glory, your word, your redemption in Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for turning from such speech, such words. To focus our attention on lies, half-truths, things so much less glorious. Father, grant us hearts that would tremble at your word, be in awe of it, 
that would count them sweeter than honey, that would delight in them. Speak, Lord. Have mercy on your children. Save your elect. In Christ's name, amen. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson completed a work he titled, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. That title tells all. The life. The work is unconcerned with Jesus' death and resurrection. Couple that with the next line, the morals. Because it's unconcerned with His death and resurrection, that's what's left to focus on, His morals. And so Jesus is made out to be just another great moral philosopher. And then you see that the descriptor is that He's Jesus of Nazareth. The descriptor. He's not from heaven, the eternal Son of God. He's just Jesus of Nazareth. In 2005, Christian Smith, a sociology professor at Notre Dame, summed up American religion as moralistic therapeutic deism. Reflecting on Jefferson, you can see It was a short trip. We didn't have long to go. Strike out the therapeutic, and you have the religion of Jefferson. Moralistic deism. What I haven't told you yet, but many of you probably know, is that Jefferson didn't write one word of that work. It was a cut and paste project. He took scissors to the Bible, and the parts he wanted to keep, glued them onto a bound book, or a book he had bound. You can see the book today, it's held by the Smithsonian Institute. What he purged were any references to the miraculous, the supernatural. Jefferson didn't burn the Bible He just relegated the pieces he didn't like to the wastebasket. Neither was his act a public one, like Jehoiakim's. This wasn't uh, information that he wanted out in public, and you can see why. Though there were many deists, many deists in, in political positions in that age, this wouldn't fare well for him politically to be public knowledge. This was for his own private use. Even so, his act was less violent. It was more reasoned. It was just as damning and irreverent. The Jefferson, Jeffersonian method was replicated by liberal theologians in the 19th century in their quest for the historical Jesus. They didn't use a physical knife, but with the knife of their words, they would tell us this part, this represents the historical Jesus, but this part couldn't possibly be true or have happened. It was a, it was a later addition. It, was, it became a part of this Jesus myth that grew over time. And thus, like Jefferson, once they finished with their editorial 
revisions. The only thing was left, the only good news was left, was what they called the social gospel. And while the evangelical church held firm against the intellectual elite's attack on the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, she succumbed to the masses concerning the sufficiency of Scripture. She would never take a pen, knife, or scissors, or, or subject the Word of God to the flame. No, that, that would be irreverent. Instead, the Word of God is left to be buried under the collected dust of neglect. The Bible is, for many in the evangelical church, little more than a prop. It's mind to find scriptures that will say what they want it to say. Prop up what they want to hear. Now say what we will about Jefferson and the liberal theologians. At least they rigorously read the word of God. Which is much more than can be said for many who say it is inerrant. And authoritative. We may believe in the miraculous. But like Jefferson. We only want the Bible to say. What we want it to say. We fool ourselves. In so doing. That we're not as vile as Jehoiakim. Relegating the parts we don't like. To the fires of oblivion. This episode opens during the fourth year of Jehoiakim, verse 1, which is significant. If, if you remember, Jehoiakim was placed on the throne by Pharaoh Necho. He didn't come into subjection to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon until the latter part of his 11-year reign. So at this point, Israel, Judah is still a vassal of Egypt. But it is this year, this fourth year, that Babylon has a decisive and critical victory over Egypt at Carchemish. Egypt is not totally done with, but this was a crippling blow. This fourth year is mentioned four times in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, uh, Jeremiah receives a word that's to be declared to Judah as a whole. That because she's failed to listen, God will bring Babylon against her and destroy her. Chapter 45, a word comes to Barak. Chapter 45, the whole chapter, it's a small chapter, is devoted to a word specifically to Barak in the fourth year. More, more on that in a bit. More important is that in chapter 46 which is the first chapter of a section of Jeremiah known as the Oracle Against the Nations. In chapter 46, a word comes to Jeremiah in the fourth year concerning Egypt and how Babylon will destroy her. In the fourth year, she's still under Egypt, and Jeremiah receives a word that Babylon will destroy Judah, and also a word goes forward that Babylon will destroy Egypt. So it's with all these pieces on the board, you can see God especially 
with what happens in chapter 36 is declaring checkmate. Fourth year, he's commanded to take this scroll and write on it all the words. In chapter 30, he received a similar task. But there, the compilation was to be made up of all the four words. This one is a compilation of all the against words. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah. So, chapters 30 through 33 are all the four words. This compilation is going to be all the against words. The previous one had all God's promises to Judah. This one, all of His judgments. And so, that previous one is known by scholars as the Book of Consolation. This one, I, I haven't noticed any scholar who didn't dare to give it a name, but this clearly should be the Book of Desolation. And it was to be the much longer book. We can only speculate as to what it would include, but I think many scholars are, are pretty close when they think it was likely comprised of chapters 1 through 26 and chapters 46 through 51. Because it also includes those words against all the nations. Why was Jeremiah to go to all this trouble? Why write it all down? Verse 3. It may be. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do them. So that everyone, everyone may turn from his evil way. And that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. It may be repentance is the hope. Jeremiah is to see if his collected works meet with any better reception than the individual titles did. And yet, though this may be from a human perspective, God knows what will be. And He knows that this surely will not be. You remember in chapter 7, verse 27, God tells Jeremiah... They will not listen. He knows how they will respond. And in that instance, he tells Jeremiah what the response will be. In this one, he doesn't tell Jeremiah everything. Chapter 17, verse 10, we learn that Yahweh knows the heart. He tests the mind. So then, why, why write this message? God knows how they will respond. Well, first, we cannot say that the writing and then the reading of this was met with absolutely zero repentance. There are indications otherwise. And second, this hope that's held forward here determines the tone of Jeremiah's message, and the tone is just as much as part of the message as the message itself. Repent, there is hope. There's forgiveness. Promise, should you repent? You see, that's part of the message. And then third, this demonstrates what the proper response to the declaration of God's judgment should be. Repentance. And what the hope held forth, if they would respond properly, is forgiveness. But still, you can wonder, why write the message? <laughs> Naturally, Rehearsing such a large body of material isn't something one could do just off the cuff. 
hey, can you remember the past 23 years of, of ministry, Jeremiah, and just go declare that to Judah? I can't remember a sermon I preached last week that well. Jehoiakim's reaction probably provides another answer as to why he wrote it. And yet a further answer will be provided shortly, and then another one at the end of our, our study. Anyhow, Jeremiah obeys, and he calls for Barak to act as his amanuensis. That's a secretarial scribe. Jeremiah would dictate, Barak would record. This was a common way of, of writing letters, not only at this age, but this is how much of our New Testament, if not all of it, was, has come to us. You remember in, in Romans chapter 16, we see the secretary Paul used, Tertius, uh, includes his own personal greeting in that letter. Barak is referred to as a secretary in verse 26, as a uh, scribe in verse 23. You remember we first encountered him earlier whenever Jeremiah entrusted that deed to the piece of land that he had redeemed to Barak? Well, sometime after this, after it's written, Jeremiah commands Barak to read the scroll in the hearing of all the men of Judah, verses 5 through 7. And the reason is, now we get another clue of why this is written. The reason is, Jeremiah's banned from the temple precincts. We're not told why. Many speculate it has something to do with the temple sermons that are recorded in chapter 7, chapter 19, chapter 26, 1, or all of those. And while we can't say for certain that Jeremiah was banned for one of those sermons, one of those particular sermons. We can say from a study of those particular sermons, you can see why it is that Jeremiah would be banned from the temple precincts. God's going to destroy this place. Boy, the offerings haven't been so great today. Barak is instructed to do this, verse 6, on a day of fasting. Now the thing is, most of the religious feasts were... Feasts, they were celebratory. Only one, the Day of Atonement, was said to be a day on which they would afflict themselves, which would include, among other things, fasting. As to the nature of this fast day, though, more will be made clear shortly. But we do see now, clearly, another reason why Jeremiah would write these things. He cannot go to the temple precincts himself. His message is to reach the mass of Judah. The mass of his message is to fall upon the mass of Judah, but he cannot get to where they assemble in such numbers. The written word can often get where the spoken word cannot. One thinks of the ministry of the Gideons. Or of Brother Andrew, who smuggled Bible after Bible behind the Iron Curtain? Why have Christians labored so hard to translate the Scriptures into difficult languages and disseminate them in the hardest of places for the very hope? That Yahweh holds out to Jeremiah. It may be. For the very hope that Jeremiah holds out to Barak. 
it may be. It may be that they might hear of God's holy and righteous judgment and turn from their wicked ways and God would forgive them their iniquities. And saints, don't miss this. Barak is to read for the very same reason Jeremiah was to write. Barak, a secretary, was to read these words for the same reason that Jeremiah, a prophet, had them written down. Barak and Jeremiah have different callings, but the word has the same purpose. We are none of us prophets. We don't need to be. Because we have the prophetic word of the Holy God. God sometimes blesses a particular man's ministry of the word. But we need to realize in that it is the word preached that's blessed. Not the preacher of the word. God is fond of using weak instruments to demonstrate the power of his word. In the gospel of Christ. Spurgeon's grandfather once uh, himself, a minister, once remarked, there now. He interrupted the preaching of, of Spurgeon to, to make this remark, actually. There now, my grandson can preach the, go- the gospel a great deal better than I. But he cannot preach a better gospel, can he? If you fear, you cannot preach it, not even in the lesser sense that we have in mind here. The sense of just proclaiming it, sharing it. If you fear, you cannot preach it. Saint, know this. You can read it. Read the Word. On a scheduled day of humiliation, an instance not unlike that in our text. A similar uh, occasion. In many ways, Spurgeon was to preach at the Crystal Palace. He went a few days ahead of time to test the acoustics. To do so, simply read John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And as he read that text, a workmen in the palace heard the word read was struck convicted repented and was forgiven of a sin all Spurgeon did was read or recite God's word that story is even more beautiful whenever you know that Spurgeon himself was converted At the preaching of a a simple substitute preacher. Wasn't where he was planning on going to church that day. But because of uh, snowy weather. He turned into this church. And the minister. Took his text. Isaiah 45.22 Look unto me. And be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he simply kept calling again and again, look to Christ, look to Christ crucified, look to Christ buried, look to Christ 
risen, looked to Christ, descended, looked to Christ, looked to Christ, came his, his urgent but simple plea again and again and again. And Spurgeon said, Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to Him alone. This is why we preach the Word. This is why we read the Word. Because... The gospel is the power of God into salvation. And when we read it, when we proclaim it, it may be. Lord, may it be so. One wonders, though, how Barak felt about all this. How did he feel about playing Jeremiah's stunt double? Jeremiah is banned from the temple precincts. For one or a few sermons. Barak is to drop a ton of Jeremiah on them all at once. It's not important. We're not told how Barak felt of it. But I think you do get an indication. If you'll read that chapter with that word that's specifically spoken to Barak and Chapter 45, during the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. Barak obeys, he reads the scroll, in the ninth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim's reign, verses 8 through 10. One reason for this was no doubt the time it would have taken to write all these things down. But another is that he was to read this on a fast day, and now it has come. The people... Proclaim a fast, verse 9. The Day of Atonement, that day on which they would afflict themselves, comes in the seventh month. This is the ninth month. This is not a scheduled fast. This is a proclaimed fast. And you get the sense that it wasn't, it wasn't that they proclaimed it and then came. They came and then proclaimed it. What's happening? We're not told. We do know that in that fourth year, whenever Nebuchadnezzar won that battle at, Neb- at Carchemish against Egypt, thereafter he learns that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, has died. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was acting as the crown prince at this point. He was ki- regarded as king, but his father was still living and in bad shape. So he returns back to Babylon. It's in the fifth year that he returns. And he takes Ashkelon, that city, that city of, the, of the Philistines. So he is on the doorsteps. The doorstep of Judah, as it were, you see. I believe the reason they came to Jerusalem is what's so often been spoken of, of the people fleeing there for refuge. They're starting to come into the city. And as they do so, the people, not the king, not the priest, not the prophets, the people proclaim a fast. The same language is used by Jehoshaphat 
whenever he proclaimed a fast and the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites had come against the kingdom. He proclaims a fast. It's the same kind of thing that's happening here. They're proclaiming the fast. It's a national emergency. Babylon is on their doorstep. So it appears then with this. Barak has not only the largest possible audience, but the most receptive kind of audience. The way the story unfolds, as you immerse yourself into it, not as you already know how everything plays out, but as you immerse yourself into the story and let it carry you along, you see how this is, this is causing you to hope it may be, it may be. It may be that Judah will hear of this judgment, will turn from their evil ways, and God will forgive them. And Barak is apparently given this platform even to address them from. Gemariah, the son of Shaphan. This is not the, in, the first time we've encountered a member from the house of Shaphan in Jeremiah. In chapter 25, we learn that Ahikam son of Shaphan, protected Jeremiah from being executed. We hear nothing of the response of the people here. What we do hear of is Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, reporting all these words to the officials who had gathered in the secretary's chamber, verses 11 through 13. And not content with the report alone, they fetch Barak and the scroll, verse 14, and once he's before them, Barak reads the scroll a second time. Barak has written all this out. Now he has read it. Now he's reading it again. And the officials respond with one fear, verse 16. Two, saying that they have to report this to the king. Three, with the question, were these things written at his dictation? Barak replies, he dictated to me. It's as though Jeremiah is he who must not be named. Four, they give instructions for Jeremiah and Barak to hide. Verse 19. They obviously have some idea of how this report is going to be received. And you see that also, I think, in that before they go to report the king report to the king, they store the scroll in the secretary's chamber, verse 20. But once again, Jehudai is sent to fetch the scroll. This time, Jehudai read, reads it to the king and to those servants, those officials who stood beside the king. And, and it's going to be clear, this is a different set of officials here. As the scroll it's read, with it being winter and the fire pot before the king to keep him warm, as a few columns are read... He cuts them off to toss them into the fire. You see the kind of cold resolve. This, this isn't like a, a crime of passion. This is thoughtfully done. Piece by piece. Tossed into the fire. King demonstrates no fear. No humility. No conviction. Even whenever Elnathan, Deliah, Gemariah implore him not to burn the scroll, he continues on, verse 24. And instead, he gives this command for Barak and Jeremiah to be seized. What were his plans? 
probably similar to the fate that the scroll met. You remember in chapter 26, this happened during the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign. Jeremiah preaches and the priest and the prophets want him executed. That's where we saw that Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was instrumental in Jeremiah's not being executed at this time. And with that, we're told that this same time frame, Uriah was a prophet, speaking with similar words, fled to Egypt. But the king had him extradited, sent men to get him, brought him back and had him ex- executed. Uriah hid, and the king found him and had him killed. And so though we see Jeremiah and Barak have hid themselves, what's critical here is that Yahweh hid him. With all this, the most powerful thing that Jeremiah has done in this text to awaken our hope that it may be the most powerful thing comes crashing down at this point and brings about a sharp contrast. What is it that he's done so masterfully? Let me read the first two verses again. See if it begins to to come into your mind. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah. Let me read one more. Verse 9. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, Think of the whole of the story that we've had before us now. And listen to 2 Kings 22, 8-13. Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. Book of the law, house of Yahweh, official. Speaking to another official. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king. Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered into the hand of the workmen who have have oversight of the house of Yahweh. And Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. You see why it is that that little detail, why does Jeremiah include the little detail? Whenever Jehoiakim heard this, he didn't fear and he didn't tear his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah, Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Azaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of Yahweh for me and the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. 
you see in that instance, the word came first to the officials, and then to the king, and then from the king to all the people as he led them in repentance. Here, it comes first to the people who are fasting, and then to the officials who respond with fear, and then to the king. Who tosses it into the fire. And with that. All of our hopes that it may be. Seem to be burnt up as well. Then Jeremiah though is told. To take another scroll. And write on it. All the words. Of the former one. But this is to be a expanded edition. With one new chapter in particular devoted to Jehoiakim concerning burning this scroll. Because he has done so, verses 29 through 31, he will have no heir to rule on the throne of David. His son Jehoiachin would reign, but he would reign only for three short months. And he would receive this word. Chapter 22, verse 30 of Jeremiah. Write this man, Jehoiachin, down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. The last reigning king would instead be Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother. Further, while while, uh, Jehoiakim used the word as winter fuel... God's word declares Jehoiakim will die exposed to the elements. In chapter 22, verses 18 through 19, Yahweh said, No one will lament your death. You will be buried with the burial of a donkey. In other words, like some unclean livestock that dies and you just haul it off to rot, exposed to the elements. That will be your death. He, his offspring, the officials who failed to tremble, At the word, all the people of Judah, upon them, the disaster will come. All the disaster that Yahweh has pronounced, verse 31. And so, Jeremiah takes another scroll. It's expanded on. Many similar words are added to it, verse 32. Why did Jeremiah write all these things down now again? One thing demonstrates that Jehoiakim did absolutely nothing to the Word of God. The Word of God didn't cease to exist when it was thrown into the fire. All Jehoiakim did was burn some pieces of paper. Nothing more. The Word comes out unscathed. J.I. Packer says, Jehoiakim burns God's words, ignoring its warnings. That's like getting out of a car to destroy a bridge out sign done at one's own peril. It would have proved less devastating if Jehoiakim had just threw a container of gasoline or a pallet of dynamite into that fire. It isn't God's word that was consumed by Jehoiakim's actions. It's that Jehoiakim brought the fire of God's wrath down on himself. 
Beyond this, though, why write another scroll? No doubt it formed the backbone for what we have as Jeremiah today, for one. And with that, as you are here hearing Jeremiah read, hearing it proclaimed, can you see why Jeremiah wrote? It may be. It may be that they would hear, that you would hear. No, it has been so, has it not? The hope that's been kindled by this text is one that's not totally abandoned. Many have heard, turned from their wicked ways. God has forgiven their sin and iniquity. The prophet Isaiah declared, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Wicked men cannot destroy the word of God. The word will destroy all wicked men. God will breathe and they will wither as grass. They may cut and burn paper and demonstrate their irreverence, but the word of God remains unscathed, abiding forever. And as its threats stand, though sinful man rails against them, even so, its promises stand. Despite all our sinfulness, there is grace and mercy in Christ for those who will turn from their sins and turn in faith to the Son of God who took on flesh to live in obedience to the Word, accomplishing all righteousness for us that we might be clothed with His righteousness and bearing God's wrath and judgment. Bearing the curse of all these things that are written against us. That we might be forgiven of our iniquities and sins. If you will repent on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is certain. It will be so. He will forgive. He will cleanse. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, praise be to you. For the great, awesome, immeasurable promises that are held out to us in Christ. 
that in Christ? Your answer is yes and amen to every promise of salvation. We are undeserving of the Word become flesh and the written Word that declares Him. We simply thank You for it and plead that with the new covenant hearts that You've granted us in Christ, we would tremble at Your Word. We would revere it. We would glorify Christ with our lives, obeying the very word that He obeyed for our salvation. Obeying it not for our salvation, knowing that's secure in Christ, but obeying it for Christ's glory. Wanting to live as our elder brother, wanting to be conformed to His image. And Father, we plea with You, may it be so. Father, grant us boldness, faithfulness, longing, love to proclaim Your Word, to read Your Word, hoping that as they hear, they would turn from their evil. And find that same forgiveness and mercy in Christ, whose name we pray in. Amen.